Hello and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience to help shape your knowledge of the industry. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Hosts today are myself, Brian Fox, and beside me is Carol Tallon. Okay, thank you, Brian. We have an interesting lineup ahead with some great guests, and we'll hope to show a different side of the property market. But first, let's look at some of the big stories of the week. So, now, one of the stories of the week last week was actually how, in the Sunday Independent reported that 2020 will see an end to homes in negative equity, according to the SRI. And um, that's that was actually an agreement with Property Industry Ireland and Ronan Lyons. Uh, similarly, this was supported by Breaking News, which reports that property prices in Dublin dropped for the first time uh, in the last quarter. Also, according to The Independent, the big freeze in house prices is blamed on central bank rules stifling the market. So, any other news, Brian? Well, it seems that the uh, the IPPII roundup, uh, that's the information taken directly from the new estate and lettings agency from Four Property, tells us that there are 950 new properties on the market nationwide, with a further 1,300 new properties that went for rent. Quite interesting, I think. And we have somebody here to talk about that today. Okay. The average sold price of the last 30 days decreased by minus 6.8% when compared with the last 12 months. So that's a decrease. And the average days to sell uh, of the last 30 days de- decreased by minus 4.5% when compared to the when compared with the last 12 months. This information is thanks to IPPI app from the uh, property team at Four Property. Okay, very good. So, our first guest in studio today is Shane O'Callaghan, Managing Director of Kennedy Casey Estate Agents. Shane, you're very welcome to Property Matters today. Thanks a million. Delighted to be here. Um, congratulations on the show. I've been listening keenly over the last few weeks. So well, we're going, have. we're going to, to test. We're going to test you, Shane, don't, how don't, keenly don't. you've what, been listening. Well, tell us, uh, Shane, how, how do you think, um, how are you finding things at the moment in the, in the property front in Dublin? Yeah, look, things are busy. Um, we're Casey Kennedy Estate Agents based in Stillorgan. So mm-hmm. I suppose for your local, local yeah, operators. Yeah, yeah, so the majority of our business would be in or around Stillorgan, Mount Mary and Blackrock area. Um in terms of sales, we're extremely busy at the moment. Um, not giving you guys anything groundbreaking in terms of anything you haven't heard on the show, or it's within within the media already. In terms of certainly anything up to three hundred thousand, there's still an awful lot of cash buyers around. That's what we're finding. Uh, I suppose the bracket between three and five hundred thousand, um, which I suppose would be the the first time buyers bracket. Um, mm. It's very, very busy, and then anything after five hundred thousand seems to be a little bit slow. And um, I think certainly. So you are finding first-time buyers coming into the area; they can afford to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, the central bank rules has a, has affected everything, mm. and you know well, the view uh, would be they should possibly try and loosen that. I think a little bit. It's difficult, you know. Yeah. Well, the, you you might have heard there that that was actually one of the news headlines this week. So, do you think that that's a fair observation? Are the central bank rules really slowing things down? Yeah, I think so. I think three and a half times your salary is 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 going to slow things down. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you hear that developer uh, Cork developer Michael O'Flynn actually was calling for um, salary? salary limits of four and a half times. Yeah, that's kind of the figure that's been bandied around. I yeah. think that's a fair figure really um, and that would be a, you know, consensus certainly among agents so that's, that seems kind of a fair, a fair type of figure. So you, you've, you, you're obviously, the, 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 you find that the market pretty buoyant at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly. And cash buyers. Yeah, cash buyers under 300 grand are certainly an awful lot of them about. Anything up to five is very, very buoyant. I'm finding, I think, anything after 500,000, 
the consensus is it's probably slowed down a little bit. Oh. So what would you say to um, potential buyers or, or, or shall we say the, the cynics that are suggesting that it's impossible for uh, low, sort of people like that are guardian or young nurses and uh, yeah. that sort of yeah, just, wage just <laughs> trying to get into the area? Just talking to a friend of mine even earlier tonight, he's a, he's a, he's a teacher on a, on, on a single salary trying to buy. Look, the properties are out there, it's hard work, it's it's go to your viewings, be organised, have your have your alerts on daft as properties come to the market, be there, but they're, they're there. I suppose know what you're time. looking for as well. Exactly, you know what you're looking for. Oh. Yeah. Shane, can I ask you about something that sometimes estate agents have been slow in the past to talk about, um, but a couple of years ago, I was told anecdotally that maybe one in every three properties um, that went sale agreed was falling through, and normally they were falling through at quite an early stage, as in before the book and deposit was even paid, so whether you had overzealous or inexperienced bidders or people bidding on multiple properties, but what have you any idea or any indication of what the fall through rate is at the moment anecdotally yeah no I, I certainly wouldn't think that the figure is as high as that for ourselves we're very very careful what we do um, anybody that's bidding on a property will be pre-approved we'll have to see mortgage approval we'll have to see whether they've got cash or ready yeah. to go if you've done things in place at the start the likelihood of a sale falling through is I suppose le- less Um that's good. Yeah. That's good for young buyers. Um, but actually, do you know, I did an interesting experience from a buyer that, that contacted me recently. Mm. And she was, I, I, I'm just inter- interested mm. to know, is this symptomatic of the market? She was looking at a property that was on the market, I think at about 285. and But the next nearest bid was somewhere in the region of 260 or 265. But a neighbouring property had sold for closer to the 300. Okay. Now, she had backed away because she was afraid of bidding because that's something that nervous first-time buyers, they're very slow to engage in bidding even though it's such a necessary part of the transaction. But um, in that particular scenario, no other bidders came in. So the the best price being achieved at the open market was about 267 and the owners didn't they opted not to accept that and they said if they didn't get kind of the 280 figure that they would bring the property to the rental market which obviously makes sense so actually this particular buyer went put in an offer of 280 took the property off the market and she has since got a structure survey done and is sale agreed and waiting for contracts to issue now I think that's a very positive news story but it's something that buyers aren't aware of that sometimes if there's properties that have been sale agreed and they come back to the market there's a really good opportunity that if you're lined up and you have your your um, approval your mortgage approval ready to go and you're ready to, and you're decisive and you're ready to make an offer there's opportunities out there on uh, in the lower end of the market am I right in saying that because that was I think the intercore area yeah no absolutely again um, I mean we don't know the reason why the, the other property went for, mm. for, for that little bit more Um you know, it could have been often you see a property go for sale up the road and, you know, your vendor is looking at that property with envious eyes, perhaps, yeah. you know, it could have been that there was competitive bidding on that property, which effectively pushed the price up. Oh, yeah. That property might have been overvalued at 300k, effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 280 is the actual market value of the, of are the you, property are, for sale. Yeah. Are you finding buyers are a little bit nervous about bidding? Is it something that they're shying away from or they're backing out too quickly? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're, I suppose, particularly for a first-time buyer, if this is something you're getting involved in, I've never been yeah. involved in it before. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it can be an anxious time, I guess, for you. Of course. You know, so it's, it can be, uh, it can be a difficult process, I suppose. And gazumping is that still? 
Uh, absolutely not. No, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Illegal, not. you know. Oh, well, actually, not. Brian, I'm going to... Uh, now, I'm not an estate agent and I never have been, but this is the one thing for the past decade. Estate agents get slammed for this and in my experience, and in my experience over a decade and a half, gazumping is, an, is a buyer-led issue. You know, sellers don't Explain. do this and estate agents don't do this. Okay. Buyers do this. So, as in, they're told there's an offer on a property and... Yeah. And they insist on making a higher offer. Correct, but of course, an estate agent shouldn't be shouldn't be accepting uh, the oh, higher offer. Because I, yeah. I, I, but aren't I, I you still obliged to take <coughs> it to your to your client? Not, uh, no, we're not at all. Not once, once it's sale agreed. Not, not once it's sale yeah. agreed. So, so sure, I mean, let's, at, let's at Casey Kennedy, we yeah, go ahead. yeah no, sorry, yeah, Casey, yeah, repeat. I, yeah, that's that's an interesting point you're making there. Yeah, you, you know, at, at Casey Kennedy, we would have a very open and transparent CRM yeah. system. Once a prop, you know, we're obliged now, obviously, to record all bids. Uh, the introduction of, the, of our regulator a number of years ago was a very, very positive thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all bids are recorded. It's a very, very transparent process. And once your sale agreed with a property, there's That's absolutely it. no something. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's illegal. Yeah, it's yeah. Because I had heard of it. The reason I'm bringing it up now, I had heard yeah. of a, a personal anecdote where someone got caught in a situation. I'm not going to talk about it over the year, but mm. obviously they weren't too happy with, with, with it was something allied to what, what we're talking about but mm. it's been resolved now anyway. but let's talk about um, the proportion of rentals to um, to to buying um, what is the the, 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 the sorry the resi- the, uh, b- the rental market like in, in South Dublin at the moment pretty tight I'd imagine yeah absolutely um, I don't know the figures off the top of my head but certainly very very low numbers of rentals out there obviously mm. the, the rentals that are there they're at astronomically high figures Um how competitive is it? Yeah, extremely competitive. Obviously, I had a viewing last Saturday in Silorgan with 12 people turning up on what's probably right? an overpriced right? property. Right? So in a situation like that, for anybody who's listening out there, um, there is 12 people to tur- turn up at the same time. Um, 12 people would be very low. I've heard instances uh, of two better apartments okay, in the dock yeah, absolutely. attracting but, but, thousands yeah. but, of applicants. But, but, but what, what should people be turning up with to get that property? Yeah, well, uh, I would certainly... I, I don't generally as a real take paperwork off people on the spot but I'll have them I'll talk to them and tell them what I need obviously going forward you have your email ready it's ready to go you've got your obviously got your landlord reference which is absolutely crucial did you pay rent on time did you look after the property and obviously a current so landlord reference right, yeah, okay, a current okay, landlord okay, reference okay. obviously then a work reference is another important one I'd, I'd always say with the work reference to try and cl- include your salary so very good mm. you may well be working mm. for J or M construction but how much are you actually earning unemployed. in a year if you, if you happen to be unemployed or for a short space of time I suppose that's a, a, a that would be a a, a, a negative yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. unfortunately so but so yeah so your work reference obviously your landlord reference uh, bank reference is another is another important one as well but yeah that we can yeah. that we can fully check out and generally so I'll do the viewing I'll say to people look if you're interested here's my email address pass me the information on the course of the day and then we'll generally make a decision from there Right. obviously right. if you're lacking that information it's going to be very very difficult to re- or if you're lacking any part of that information it's going to be very very difficult yeah, to rent yeah. okay. are you finding sorry Brent yeah. are you finding landlords are you know th- there's commentary there that small landlords are leaving the market are you is are you finding that is that your experience because the um, the PTRB um their figures don't seem to tally with that. Yeah, uh, residential tenants board, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with that. There's very little incentive out there to be a landlord. Obviously, at mm-hmm. the moment, um, you're taxed. Um, all the laws of the land are in favour of your tenant. 
um, and uh, you know it's, it's difficult I guess is, is that you know a couple of years ago definitely uh, uh, when we saw the introduction of the Residential Tenancies Board and there definitely seemed to be uh, a slight imbalance in favour of the tenant and away from the landlord has that been put to rights at all has it been has it been given a more equal balance uh, uh, Certainly not, in my opinion. I think I think um, it's weighed against. Oh, the weighed tenant. Is it weighed oh, against? Oh, sorry, oh, weighed against. To be very clear, to be weighed against. To be very clear, to be weighed against the landlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, years ago, uh, people have to remember this. You know, you're putting somebody in your property there now. Once they're there longer than six months, they're on a part four tenancy. They are in your property for six years, mm. unless you decide to, unless you decide you need to sell the property, unless you decide you need it for a family member, etc long gone as the idea you put somebody in for 12 months you didn't like them anymore and they had to go once um, they're longer than six months you are saddled for six years it's as simple mm. as that did i see are there proposed changes to that so if a, if a landlord wants to sell or needs it for family use that the property might actually not be available yeah well th- there is talk that you now have to actually sell a property with your tenant in it which i think is this is this is legislation. Yeah, that's going to go yeah. Through there's, there's, there's legislation yeah. at the moment. Apparently, yeah. yeah. You know, I would hope certainly that that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's just yeah. going to make it's going to make things a lot more difficult when it comes to selling your property. Obviously, because you've got to, well, if you've got you a tenant, change the in there. dynamics. Yeah. Absolutely, the yeah, yeah. So, I mean, generally, if I'm advising in terms of a sale, what you want to see when you're going into view a property on a Saturday morning, you want to see bright, you want to see fresh, yeah, you want yeah, to see open. Yeah, yeah, if you've got a sitting tenant there. Yeah. Dirty shoes lying around, yeah, beds yeah. not made, etc. It it actually decreases the value of your property. Of course it does. And actually, speaking of devaluing your property in South Dublin, I see there just today the National Transport Authority confirmed that the Metrolink project will not continue south of Charlemont Lewis stop in Dublin. What do you make of that? You've just mentioned that to me coming in. Obviously, certainly, I think those homeowners will be happy Delighted. wherever they are. Uh, they absolutely. Are. <laughs> obviously, you've got and the politicians in the area as well. <laughs> it's going you to. Think their seats are safe come May. Well, there's been a lot of hard um, lobbying there by by national and local politicians there, including yeah. Owen Murphy as well. You know, and For it's it's it, they they were very upset, and yeah. it's a very middle class area as well, as you know. Fairly obviously, it will decrease the value of your property Absolutely, if you've got something yeah, like that kind yeah. of side. So I'm sure I mean, uh, homeowners it was, was it short sighted of the National Transport Authority to try and come up with that sort of idea in the first place? Do you think it it would appear so? I think it's a bit. Shane Ross has certainly been running with that idea for quite a while, has he not? So. Um, yeah, it seems uh, short-sighted to uh, me. Uh, you know, even from that, just to extend that uh, that conversation, um, Shane, it, it, you mean for in in terms of and there's discussions about it at the moment, in terms of infrastructure. Actually, it was discussed in 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 the Dáil this afternoon in the con- in this context, at leaders' questions. The uh, infrastructure, the public infrastructure, uh, in terms of transport, is lacking uh, in very much in Dublin South, in that we don't really have. We're, we're caught between two corridors, a mm. rail corridor and a, and a tram corridor, and in between buses, mm. you know. Um, how, how, in relation to your own business, how, how do you feel that is affecting you? Uh, well, it's difficult enough to answer some of that stuff. Certainly, the Lewis is obviously a great... Uh, great thing over the last number of years obviously those with properties beside the Lewis obviously it's increased value of them we would certainly have an awful lot of sales up in the Leperstown Sandyford area Um, and obviously Lewis has has um, affected prices positively up up in them areas you know yeah yeah. actually that's one of the things that I you know I suppose to play the devil's advocate here um, I I can see that there would be a positive effect to this going in Mm. so 
are, are we allowing the current homeowners sit with their front and back gardens and off street parking and you know is there an element of nimbyism there where well, actually they're potentially jeopardising uh, future owners coming in and would this transport link not make this area more valuable in the long term for property values? Well, let you answer that. It's a difficult one to answer. Uh, again, possibly in the longer term, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, but then who wants but who wants to lose half their who wants to ha- yeah who wants to lose their front gar- half their front garden? I guess as well, you know. Yeah, you see. I feel like in 10 years time or 20 years time how many of us will have front and rear I mean, gardens I, I mean, very few of us probably I yeah. think, I yeah. think the, the, the idea yeah. of a spur going out to Rathfarnham Rathmine is that, that type of idea coming in by UCD was far more uh, look, looking far far ahead rather than just repeating what we have already outside the door you know and mm-hmm. then and then pl- traffic disruption for years just we have a couple of minutes left just to talk to you about property management uh, in terms of apartments um, there's a lot of again um, scepticism about um, property management with with people going into with people going into apartment property what um, you know in terms of parking in terms of, of state fees and all the rest of it um, is that a is that a legitimate argument? I mean, uh, do you how do you see it? So are we talking about block management now. Block management, yeah. Yeah, we, we we would have a number of we would have a number of developments that we manage at, at Casey Kennedy. Obviously, under the Mud Act, it's essential to have a OMC in place, and then the OMC must employ the OMC now is what the owner management company, right, yeah. uh, and then obviously an OMC if will in general terms engage somebody like ourselves, Casey Kennedy, to to run an estate for them, um, and that's a legal requirement. Um, and there's obviously lots of challenges involved with that but yeah. it's an uh, we area do it quite successfully It's an area that's become increasingly more professional and I think that has to be a good thing both for the homeowners and for the ten- or for the for the property owners and for the tenants we want to see more professionalism I, I presume that's something that you would be very much in agreement with Oh absolutely yeah absolutely I would I would encourage any um, any OMC members that are attempting to manage a block themselves to engage uh, a company like ourselves or, or whoever to come in and, and, and increase that level of professionalism I suppose okay. um, in terms of collecting fees and bringing in services and, and running the running the OMC OK and before we let you go Shane you might just give give any potential buyers um, a, a ray of light a ray of light here just what where are the opportunities at the moment in South Dublin because I understand they're difficult to find Good question. I'm trying to think of something positive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, look, we we know that um, at the lower end of the market, below 300,000, and by the way, what's wrong with that? We think that below 300,000 is the lower end of the market. But we know that first-time buyers, and particularly single first-time buyers, are absolutely competing with local authorities and approved housing bodies. You know, how can they compete? Look, I I think we are slowly starting to build. There is a number of developments coming online, particularly in South Dublin, um, keep an eye on the market, mm. monitor the market, I suppose, mm. and, and be ready to go, you know. Well, you Great. must come in again because I want to talk to you about um, there's economic, uh, bad economic news in, in the air at the moment. We'll talk about that some other time when you come in uh, and uh, we'll, we hope to see you some other time. Anyway. That was uh, Shane O'Callaghan, Managing Director of Casey Kennedy Estate Agents. And I say thank you indeed, uh, Shane, for coming in. Next up, a quick break, we'll be joined uh, in studio by Paul Mitchell, Director of Mitchell McDermott. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Brian Fox and Karen Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty or email hello at iproperty.com. 
Okay, as mentioned before the break, joining us right now is Paul Mitchell, Director of Mitchell McDermott. We're delighted to have you here with us, Paul. Thanks, so, Carol. just explain, just explain for our audience here what exactly you do or what it is you do at Mitchell McDermott. So, we're an independent firm of project managers and quantity surveyors. So, when uh, clients want to have their buildings built, they come to us at the beginning. Uh, we assemble the team, we advise on costs, and we manage the thing from inception to completion. Okay, I I think it's interesting to note that you're running into your fifth year in the industry and I understand that the company has grown year on year so you're surpassing yeah. 40 team 40, members? Yeah, 45 today. Um, 45 years old. No, 45 new... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, they're heading, into their fifth, they're heading into their fifth year but uh, team has grown to 45. Oh, That's 45, phenomenal yeah. in that yeah, period of time. So, yeah, so Anthony and I were, were in the industry for over 20 years Um but in, at the beginning of 2015, we, we set up Mitchell McDermott as an independent firm of, of quantities of heirs and project managers. So, yeah, no, it's going well. The ti- timing was good. Timing was good, yeah. yeah. Timing yeah. is everything, isn't it? Um, so, Paul, first of all, your website actually is a mine of, a mine of information. And um, actually, your, your firm first came to my attention when somebody said, have you seen the infographics these guys do? So, in fact... Um, Mitch and McDermott have the best infographics they explain everything that's going on in the industry so I might just take you back to some of your most recently published information Um, so in terms of inflation in the the property market or in the construction industry what are we seeing in 2019? Yeah so there's been a lot of talk about inflation I think since the since the industry has has begun to recover and uh, at the end of last year the beginning of this year we carried out a, a study and we took uh, over 1.4 billion euros worth of projects and we basically took an office block in 2015 and we priced it in each year to check and take the same basket of goods as you would in CPI uh, but in construction terms and what we found was that inflation has been year on year between 5 and 6%. Um, for 2019, we're forecasting it's going to be somewhere between uh, 6 and 7%. Um, where, so where does that lie? Um, that's the Irish industry. Where does that lie in terms of global norms? Uh, global, I suppose, global is difficult because it's so different. Uh, but if we were to compare, say, with the UK? Yeah, UK is probably running at something like 4 or 5%. Oh, uh, what's causing this industrial infla- industry inflation? It, it, it's a simple case, really, of supply and demand. So you always have... So wages, the official wages, have stayed static from 2007 to 2017. Mm-hmm. And the, the hourly rate is, is the same. It, it got increased in, in 2017. So there's wage wages um there's a shortage of labor in the marketplace there is your standard increases which might only be one or two percent on materials Uh, and then there's pure supply and demand there's contractors pricing in risk to projects um, because they can afford to be a bit more choosy uh, because of the amount of work that's in the market. Okay, but where does that leave us then with the uncertainty of Brexit looming? Because what percentage of materials for the construction industry are brought in through uh, brought in through the UK? A, a significant amount. So if you if you took a project and you would say that sixty percent of it is labour and forty percent is is materials, and it varies depending mm-hmm. on the project. A lot of those components are imported. Um, like a lot of the natural stone and sand and so on is delivered Irish and it's local and it comes from natural resources um, and certain products are produced but 
uh, by and large, any products that are produced for mechanical and electrical are from overseas and involve importing. And actually, one of the things I was reading about just in in the the whole context of Brexit uncertainty is that um, the the components coming in from the UK, they're UK certified, which at the moment is European. Mm-hmm. Post Brexit, what's going to happen to the UK only standard certification? I think they'll have to go through a process of stamping. So, like the through quality, an Irish or European process, a, a European, mm. you know. So that they'll have to be stamped CE, um, and there'll have to be some equivalent uh, certification process brought in to say, okay, if it's got UK stamped on it instead of CE, it's an equivalent mark. I'm assuming. Yeah, that that's, I, that's what I would have thought so would be the sensible thing to do. You know? But where does that leave us in terms of the price or the cost of testing? Who does that fall on? The person importing the materials? I would say that the people that are the manufacturers are going to have to produce a product that can be used in the country that they're exporting to. So it's going to sit with them. Okay. Now, whether by a process of that's going to get passed on to the consumer in due course, yeah. you could only expect that that's to be the case. And of course, the uncertainty here is that due course could be very, very soon. It could be very soon and there's a lot of uncertainty and we saw the report out this morning from the SRI, you know, about loss of jobs and productivity and GDP in the country. Um, we don't know. Um, we, we think that there, there obviously could be prices passed on and it might take a while to settle down as to what competitiveness means mm. uh, in that import market with tariffs. Okay, and then I suppose in in the whole area of competitiveness, um, your firm has also been involved in a benchmarking study. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Uh, so on the on the data centre side, um, we have produced uh, a report which looks at, um, you know, what is uh, what are the data centre costs. Uh, earlier this year, the beginning of this year, it's now uh, a fact that Dublin is the largest data centre market in out of what they term FLAP, which is Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam and Paris. You know, that so actually that, that actually blew my mind. I, I, <laughs> I only learned that fact at the National Construction Summit there a couple of weeks ago mm. and I didn't realise that the Greater Dublin area is the largest data cluster in Europe. Mm. That's I, sort of back office uh, type of operations. It's it's the one basically when you store stuff on your phone and it says the cloud, yeah, that, that sits yeah. in a, an industrial facility that's full of expensive servers right. called data centres. Data centres. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And because of Ireland's steady power, and it's a great supply of strong data and fibre. Uh, there's been a proliferation of. Uh, why of data are we centers. so attractive for for that for, for data centres? Like uh, I I think you know it it simply comes down to power and data on those and whether or not we have the skills and the workforce to operate them when they're constructed. Um, but there are a lot of significant, very large clients. So the likes of what we call the hyperscalers, Microsoft, Google, who are building their own data centres to house all this data and it's only going one way. Yeah. We're saving more and more data on the regular consumer course, with yeah, photos yeah, and everything's yeah, getting yeah. bigger and heavier. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. all sits in these data centres. You know, I, I sometimes I feel that actually the activity in the data centre sector is almost siloed from the construction sector, yeah. which doesn't make sense at all. And actually, I don't think that people realise the scale of it. So I think for 2019, it's estimated or, or it's uh, forecast to be worth 1.3 billion for 2019. So these are huge figures. Um, and there's another side of this that uh, I, I know in speaking with the CIF hmm. the, the last year, Industry the Construction Federation. Industry Federation, um, one of the things that really jumped out at me was that in the last 10 years, um, this was the first crash that 
Ireland, uh, the Irish uh, professionals weren't just relying on emigrating. They were actually exporting expertise. We've never done that from the construction industry before. And a lot of that is down to um, our expertise in the offsite, in offsite construction and modular builds and in data centres. So actually, you know, part of what makes Ireland so attractive is that we have massive expertise in delivering these centres. So in fact, we've Irish professionals, actually I'm sure part of the Mitchell McDermott team are actually going out to other countries to help them deliver this. Right. So I, I think it's an it's an amazing transition for Irish construction professionals to go from having to emigrate hmm. to actually exporting their expertise. And it's it's a huge leap. It's a transformation for the industry that hmm. seems to have almost flown under the radar. It ha- I think data centres by their very nature are kept confidential you drive past one you wouldn't know where it is because they're secure facilities mm-hmm. um, but the Irish main contractors have done a fantastic job and are currently even as busy as the Irish construction industry is yeah. are currently delivering large data centres in Sweden and other parts of, of Europe oh, Irish for construction Irish construction right, companies right, right. and because consultants because of that expertise <coughs> because there. of the expertise yeah. yeah and actually that brings us on to the labour market because um, this type of expertise is actually almost putting pressure on the labour market and that's why I think it's interesting to note that only coming into your fifth year you've recruited 45 people starting from two initial partners yes. because I understand from um, from the engineering sector from the M&E sector from the contractors that are the main contractor sector it's exceptionally difficult mm. to find skilled skilled labour and and those skills in the current market yeah. so what kind of strategy do you have to ensure that you're getting the right talent and keeping the right talent yeah it it, it is probably our our biggest task um, because you can't deliver the kind of projects that we deliver unless you have experienced people um, that do that and are happy doing that so you know we've been in the Irish industry for 20 odd years um, we'll keep the odd secret um, so we know a lot of people and a lot of people have returned so people that we worked with during the previous boom and unfortunately had to emigrate have come back and we've kept our links with those people um, but then I think what's actually very heartening is to see the graduates that are coming out from college there's a lot fewer graduates um, but the graduates that are coming out are top quality um, and they're really they're probably a lot smarter and a lot more clued in and balanced than I was when I was coming out. <laughs> but tell us, uh, from, the, from the point of view of procurement and, and tendering, has that got very tight at this point in time? or, or how, how is that at the moment? I, th- I think in terms of uh, in the private sector, it's a case of trying to secure either contractors or consultants that are able to do the job. Oh, really? Yeah. Ability? Yeah, ability. Okay. Because particularly if you take contractors, they are booked up, tier one contractors are booked up six to nine months in advance. So unless you're actually securing your slot with those contractors, when you get there and you go to market, their books may be full. Right. So our advice to our clients is changing on a, on a weekly basis as to say, well, trying to match the market and how it's moving and to make sure that your project can fit that market and where the where it's at because it's it's very cyclical in between contractors you know large projects start the contractor is consumed they finish they've got big teams waiting of so bottom, sorry bottom line wouldn't be necessarily the, 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 the driving factor then to it would it it's always the it's always the yeah, clients yeah. will always but, but, say but, that but, it's but, not cost it's quality yeah, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it has right. to be competitive right yeah um, but ultimately I, I'm sure you've got competition coming in for that as well from, from there abroad are, there is an, uh, as, as uh, unpopular as it might be to say we could do with more competition coming in 
And that's simply from a standard point of view. From not from a standard point of view, I think our standards are good, and there's been a lot of work on that. Um, but in terms of trying to meet the demands of the, you know, we've had such a dearth of supply out there on residential accommodation, right? The regulations oh, yeah. changed in in March, and there is a flood of apartments. Are you referring to the regulations in terms of building heights? Bil- bil- building heights, but in in and they came through after that, and and in March of last year we had the change in terms of apartment types. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous year we did a big study for the Society Chartered Surveyors to look at apartment viability and why was the industry not producing apartments. And we also worked as part of a group within the Department of Housing to look at the standards. And those standards changed in March and it opened the gate for, up to that we had to produce a certain size and only one type, regardless of where you were in the country. Okay. And now there are basically three types that you can produce. Okay, but now is it fair to say that um, these changes actually attracted quite a lot of criticism because it definitely provided for more one-bed apartments even though we know all the data is suggesting that we need more one-bed apartments and the data in terms of social housing is telling us that there are more um, single people on the housing list. So we know that there's a need for that Mm. and yet people, uh, particularly residents in local areas, when they hear of a block of one-bed apartments coming mm. in they don't like the connotations there so how do we how do we balance that when we know that one bed apartments are needed um, and is it fair from a viability point of view mm. it makes sense to for one bed apartments it does make sense I, I think the key piece here which is a small piece is that now there's choice so we can put one beds in city centre locations where we've got young professionals or we've got people or we've got single people who haven't yet gone through family formation we now have a choice and we can put them in. Whereas before, we had to build two beds and three beds. And dual aspect and parking. And, you know, look, one of the things, and I, I've often been criticised myself for saying this, but actually I, I feel like while we don't like to refer to a property ladder, the reality is that's probably the best analogy. And um, over the past decade, we seem to have been systematically doing away with the bottom rung of the ladder. And that caused immense problems. And I think that sometimes there's... Um, Uh, a confusion between size and quality. So, Mm. for example, um, an apartment being dual aspect doesn't make it of a higher standard of build. And I think that that's um, almost a a lack of communication for uh, the planners and the construction industry. Dual aspect being the the mixture of... of, of, um, Uh, As in uh, apartments were required to be able to look out your window on both sides. Okay, (laughs) okay. As in, but but, look, that's that's kind of a... I suppose that's, you know, I I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but that's the reality. It did need to. But I I think that epitomises the ridiculousness. Uh, And Paul, is there much much potential? I mean, we're going to have to wrap this up now soon, but is there much potential in city centre Dublin now for the type of apartment we're talking about, the one bedroomed um, apartment? Absolutely. Where where would you see the locations being as a matter of interest? Like if you take any of the, if you take the North Docks that's under construction at the moment that didn't make it in the last boom. Down beyond the the central bank. Yes, if you take between the central bank and the, and the three arenas. Arena. All of those huge sites there are kind of 60% commercial, 40% residential. Yeah. You take Conley Station as another area of regeneration. But they're all very expensive, aren't they? They're expensive, but I think here that the, it's changed from build to sell to build to rent. Right. Now, unfortunately, the apartments are rental, okay? Yeah. But now we've got large funds in behind us. The funding structure has changed, and it has been the regulations and the new funding structure have been a game changer. 
on this. And when we, so all of these schemes are in planning or starting to go through since March, right? But we fast forward in two years and three years' time, and we're going to be talking a different picture completely about residential supply. And that's all down to regs and finance. Okay, but um, in terms of, so, okay, we can see that the rental market is going to come up in terms of meeting supply. Where does that leave um, home home buyers? Yeah, I think that is that is a question. And I think we are, you know, there's still a dearth of, of people out there. And I think the macroprudential rules are affecting that in terms of three and a half times combined salary. Um, and that's that, that needs to be addressed. But at the moment, our issue is with renters. Uh, and our people looking to buy are unfortunately moving to commuter commuter towns or commuter areas. Okay, look, I, I think that's a fair point. In fact, our previous guest Shane raised the very same point about the central banks, uh, central bank lending rules. And mm. in fact, you might have seen the Cork developer Michael O'Flynn actually called for limits of four and a half times salary. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see if those suggestions are taken on board. Mm. Paul, thank you so much for joining very with good. us. There's so much more that we could talk about in this issue. So we hope you'll come back and join us another day, and we'll get further into some of these issues. So that was Paul Mitchell of Mitchell McDermott. Um, thank you for being with us. Today. Today. Stay tuned after the break as we'll be hearing from Angelica Donati, PropTech contributor with Forbes magazine. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Brian Fox and Carl Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Now, our next guest is coming to us from London, Angelica Donati, PropTech contributor for Forbes magazine. Okay, I'm delighted to be joined on the line from London by PropTech con- uh, contributor at Forbes and also partner at Concrete VC, Angelica Donati. Angelica, you're very welcome. Hi, Carol. Hi, Hi, everybody. Lovely to be on the line with you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've definitely been one of the leading lights of PropTech over the last number of years. So I'm interested to hear about really your journey and how you've come to it. So you might just let, let us know how you came to be involved in PropTech in the first place. Yes, of course. So um, I think as is the case with many people in PropTech, although not all, because there's a large, actually large segment of the, of the PropTech population that doesn't come from the real estate industry. I come from a real estate background, and that was my door into PropTech. Um, so I run a construction and development firm called the Nati Immobiliare Group. And in about 2016, um, so around about the time of the Brexit vote, I was um, really looking at what could be some counter-cyclical plays to counter, you know, the, the expected turbulence that would, would come from the Brexit vote. Of course. And I, off the back of that, I co-founded a project startup with two friends of mine from business school, and that was the start of my journey. And I kind of then migrated from startup founder to, I guess, more of an investor role. Um, I picked up a Forbes column along the way and became a bit of a speaker as well. So it, it kind of all grew from there. Excellent. And look, I, I've actually been following your columns and uh, we've been in touch, obviously, online and over social media for quite some mm-hmm. time. You might just let us know some of the, the investments that you've been involved in. Are there any well-known prop tech names in there? Um, so, there. I mean, I've been very, very picky with my investments. 
Um, so I don't really know if I can disclose them, but um, no, I have. I've, I've, I've done a few small seed investments. Nothing, nothing, nothing huge yet, but I'm sure they will be. There, there's a long lead in time for these. Um, I mean, look, at, at least you're in the um, you're in this the VC sphere in London. What we're finding yeah. in Ireland, and it's been echoed by prop tech guests that we've had in over the past number of months here, that unfortunately in Ireland the VC scene is really quite limited. So in fact. Mm-hmm. Any of our successful prop techs, and uh, they get, uh, they might get to pre-seed stage or even first-round investments mm-hmm. in Ireland, but then generally they have to go to London or overseas. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's a scene that's lacking in Ireland. But aside from the VC side of things, I'm very interested in how prop tech is taking hold and. In Ireland, a little bit like you mentioned there, a lot of the early innovation was definitely consumer-led. So it was people who aren't necessarily Mm -hmm. from the industry. So I'm interested to hear that you're from a property development background. Is that that from yourself? Did you found that or was that part of a family business? Um, So it was part of a family business. So my family business is a construction firm. Uh, we're general contractors that work on large-scale in, large infrastructure projects. And I basically built my business off the back of that. Um, uh, so we were only present in Italy before I joined, was it six or seven years ago? And I built our international operations. And so did I would you take also it, add... Did you, take it from, did you take it from London to... Or from Italy to London? Yeah, I took it from Italy to London and to New York as well. Oh, and to New York. How did you find breaking into the markets, um, London and New York? How did you find that coming from having a legacy maybe in the Italian market, but not being established in UK or in the US? How did you make that break into the market? So I was fortunate enough that I, I I grew up in the UK. So I went to school here and I worked here prior to joining my family firm. So I had a bit of a network and a bit of experience here. And I started the New York business completely from scratch. And I think like every market, if, if you don't have local knowledge, it's, it's, it's hard because you're taking leaps of faith on things that you don't know that others might be very familiar with. Of course. Um, but I think in partners? general, what, what drew me to the UK and the US market is that they're particularly transparent compared to other markets globally. So if you are going to come in as a newcomer anywhere, I think, and it's my own personal view, of course, that the UK and the US are probably the least dangerous and the least difficult um, property teams to break into. That's an interesting one when you talk about the transparency of the market, because in fact, you know, I wouldn't have thought that the Irish and and the UK construction industries were so transparent, but perhaps maybe by comparison to other jurisdictions, they are. Yeah, they're not very transparent, but they're more transparent than most. Let's put it that way. I think there's that one of the biggest problems in this in this space is the lack of transparency, and that's why a lot of prospect startups are clamoring for more shared data and more you know open information because because it's a very siloed, very obscure industry. But I will guarantee that from an coming from from Italy, this is you know. It's heaven compared to what we got back there. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting one. And um, also, you mentioned data there. I mean, look, historically, the property, the planning, construction, and property industries—they're not industries that have actually capitalised on their data. You know, they're compiling masses of very valuable data, but they don't seem to be leveraging this at all. Are you seeing a change in that? Um, I think there's definitely a big change in mindset. So, I would say, first of all, the UK market um, is the most. Pro- probably the, if not one of the most advanced markets when it comes to tech and prop tech. I so, agree with um, that, yeah. this is, 
this is very much only the case here. And I would say if you were to look at the Italian market, for example, you know, you were saying in Ireland, startups struggle to fundraise. It's exactly the same in Italy. We're just nowhere there yet. But speaking about the UK market specifically, I think there's a general awareness by both in- incumbents and innovators that data is probably worth more if it's used and shared and built upon as opposed to just sitting sitting you know dormant somewhere so yeah there's then um, there's two there's really two big issues there because one is understanding the value of the data mm-hmm. and how to use it but the second thing is the point you touched on there about um the need for this to be open and again this is not mm-hmm. an industry that has taken an open approach on any no. aspect before so will data enabling technology be different well, so the thing is, you touched on a very important point. This is an industry that's not open. And the reason why it's not open is because for centuries, well, maybe not for centuries, but for a very long time, it, your unique selling point was the private data you had that nobody else had, which could, could give you a competitive advantage over the competition. But um, I think that now, with especially when, when, when we think of, let's say, smart cities, where the only way for a city to be smart is for the data in the private and public realm to be shared, um, there are certain use cases in which all stakeholders are starting to realize that the sum is bigger, bigger than the value of its parts, and so they are incentivized to sign up to these open data programs. Um, but they always need to be cleanly defined and with some clear benefits for the contributors because otherwise nobody's going to give away their precious proprietary information for free. Yeah, actually, look, I I tend to agree with you and I think that's one of the the, um, really powerful reasons behind all the smart city initiatives because we do actually need some state bodies there actually uh, pulling together all these different smart city initiatives because I think that's actually the way that we're going to get mm-hmm. the open source whereas if it was all individual uh, commercial uh, uh, organizations mm-hmm. I just don't think that, that would happen yeah so what's and that's smart? one of the yeah go oh ahead. sorry that, I was going to say that's one of the recommendations that the British Property Federation has been making with regards to data they are advocating for an open data policy at the government level yeah. Because a lot of these things, they need there needs to be regulation around them of course. to also make the stakeholders comfortable about you know, taking part in these activities. Um, I, I, look, there's a sh- there's a shared learning that needs to happen, and actually, that's one of the themes that I read in your uh, feedback from. I, I read your most recent Forbes column there, and it was the feedback from Mippen in Cannes this year. So, yeah, th- this seems to have been the key data. Uh, data and collaboration seems to be one of the key drivers about how we're going to proceed across. Mm-hmm. Uh, across 2019 and 2020. So what mm-hmm. were the other trends that became apparent at MIPM? So um, I think that obviously there's a lot of very specific micro trends that you know, are relevant to specific segments of the industry or a specific country. But I would say in terms of macro trends, and they're the ones I presented at MIPM this year, um, besides data, I think for me the biggest one is, is the types of technologies that are, you know, exciting to watch for this year and I've talked about this a lot and I'm going to continue to harp on about it but it is the year of smart technologies Um, so those technologies that make our buildings smart those technologies that make our cities smart and I think the reason for that is that it is the quickest way for real estate companies to implement tech and actually 
have it positively impact their bottom line because the real estate industry is now firmly shifting from a real estate asset management mindset to a real estate as a service mindset. Um, and in order to give the service of real estate, in order to treat your tenants as customers, which is you know what everybody wants to do these days, you need um, to not just have data, but you need to have ways of collecting that data, processing that data, acting upon that data, and tech is more often than not the answer. So there's a lot of really clever prop tech startups out there. On the one hand, the ones that provide all the sensors to collect the data, and on the other hand, the applications that process the data and deliver services off the back of it. Okay, and actually, as I was following along, why I, I didn't make it to MIPM this year, and I definitely had that FOMO, fear of missing out every time I saw <laughs> social media posts. I, I was definitely feeling like I was missing out. But one of the things I couldn't help but notice is that for every photograph I saw, I would imagine what looked like for what looked like every hundred men, there was maybe one yeah. woman, and it might sound it might sound like a trivial point, but actually I don't think it is when we're talking about the rollout of new technologies that affects half the population. Um, was I seeing was I seeing distorted images, or was there a serious gender imbalance at the conference um, this year? So I would say it's definitely not a hundred to one, but there is a gender imbalance. So okay. um, I for um, <laughs> let's see, I was on four, three panels at Mitham, and I was always the only woman on the panel. So on three panels, um, you were the only woman on each panel? Yeah. So and the only time panel, that I wasn't did, the only woman sitting up there was during the start of contest. I was one of the judges, and I was one of three women out of six judges. It was a very gender-balanced um, committee. Uh, but well, beyond that, the three panels I spoke on, I was the only woman every single time. Okay. And actually, you know, it's interesting. I did get a call to go to, I won't say which country, but there, there um, is an African nation that's hosting a PropTech conference in the next couple of months. And I got a call yeah. to say uh, I, that Angelica can't make it. Could I go? So I, I really thought there's something wrong yeah. here if we seem to be the only two female commentators traveling outside of Ireland or the UK to do conferences but it does highlight an issue that we have because it would be naive to think that this type of gender imbalance isn't going to affect the types of tech that gets implemented the types of tech that got invested in and you have a bit of a dual role here because you are involved you're a partner at Concrete VC so Mm -hmm. is this something Mm -hmm. you're conscious of when prop tech startups are pitching to you? Um, So I always sit up and notice when it's there is a female founding team just because unfortunately as you say it's rare um it's not as rare as it seems i think just because i think the numbers that we see um i don't know um maybe the numbers are slightly older or you know maybe it's just it, it captures um, a greater slice of the of the population that I see, um, but I'm always very excited when I speak to to strong female founders. Um, quite simply because they stand out. Because you know, yet another male founder is something we've all seen many times. Now, this is not to say that I, I mean I'm I'm not a huge fan of affirmative action. I think that we should get to a point where um, we are all, as I like to say, casually feminist in the sense that it's just the way things are, as opposed to something that's enforced. Um, but, but, but yeah, I guess it's female, female founding teams are rare enough that I notice and I remember when I see them. And, um, and I think a lot of it is down to kind of the double whammy of 
the way women were raised or the way society was raised to think that real estate is not really for women and tech is not really for women. And that's changing a lot and it's changing a lot in our younger generation but it's changing it's, but it's changing, changing slowly. slowly it's like I, I don't know what the figures are in the UK but in Ireland um, it's somewhere like 96% of our construction industry is male yeah so I think in the UK I don't know the number for the construction industry but I know that in real estate it's um women are t- make up 12% of the real estate now industry workforce I would have thought that it was higher in real estate more so than construction so that's an interesting and by the way I've never heard that expression um, or the term casual feminism I'm definitely going to look that one up yeah so I actually found it I read it in an article it was actually really bizarrely an article about Andy Murray um, about his retirement and the journalist was saying oh I love him because he's a casual feminist and then she explained what she meant which is that he's always been around very strong women and he um, you know he's not fussy about it he just really really believes in powerful women because that's what he knows and it just stuck to me and I I like using it now (laughs) that's an interesting one I'm going to adopt that too thank you (laughs) okay no (laughs) No problem before before we wind down I would like to maybe just get your insights into what you see as the key trends for technology affecting the planning construction and property industries as we move towards the latter part of uh, 2019 and 2020 Um, what trends are you seeing so I think I mean I think let's 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 separate the two. So on the construction side, I think, and it's pretty obvious why, I think that um, the technologies that are getting most traction are the ones that are most easily usable, and they're all in the process management side of things. So are we um, talking about off-site construction and modular construction, volumetric builds? Um, so I was thinking more in terms of workflow management and site management tech, um, purchasing management, all those things. Um, I think modular is a very interesting theme um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening in modular but the you know it, it's um, you know modular is an interesting one because it's been around for a while and a lot of the technology that goes into it is still quite simple um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for that to grow and change but I think modular today can't really be seen as tech it's just a different form of production if well, you will, I think um, if, if you ma- see how BIM is enabling um, the, the the rapid build, then I can see where there's a huge tech influence there on the construction side. Yeah, so I mean, I think BIM is the perfect example of kind of the op- overarching um, system and principles that can be put in place to facilitate everything really, because BIM runs. In, 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 in an ideal scenario, BIM will run from the initial concept design all the way through to ongoing management of an asset. And then, you know, BIM is, BIM is an infrastructure for any kind of software you want to implement within your model. So in theory, all of this clever tech that we are looking at, which is being developed as spot solutions, then can be put into a BIM ecosystem and facilitate, you know, the whole life cycle of the project. Yeah, and it is all about this certainty of project and certainty of build and certainty yeah. of budget. I mean, that, that's where construction is, is definitely yeah. focused on at the moment. And then on the other side of it, I suppose, before we let you go, your final thoughts on trends for the real estate or property side of things. Yeah, so I think for, for, for the whole kind of real estate asset management side of things, I, I would reinforce what I said before. I think it's everything that helps real estate be delivered as a service um, to maximize the, um, well, 
to maximize the satisfaction of its end users, which are, you know, the tenants and the occupiers and the office workers um, in the buildings. And as a consequence of that, to make their employers more productive and successful, and so to make the buildings more fruitful for the landlords. Excellent. So all in all, that's just leading to a frictionless transaction. Yes, exactly. So I think ultimately the goal of tech in anything really is to uh, make the market more efficient, make it less friction, well, make it more frictionless rather, to reduce the friction um, and ultimately enable segmentation to go down to a segment of one, which is, I mean, probably premature in our industry, but, you know, personalized services, they really get you the most of what you want and nothing of what you don't need. That's that, that's exactly it. Great words to finish up on. Angelica, thank you so much. That was Angelica Donati, uh, PropTech contributor at Forbes and partner at Concrete BC. Angelica, thank you so much for your time and we'll chat to you again soon. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's been lovely to speak with you and I hope to see you soon and hopefully in Paris. Oh, hopefully in Paris. Take care. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's it from us in studio today. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Property Matters, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at ipropertyradio.com. And we want to thank all all of our guests for being on the show with us today. Next week, we'll be joined in the studio by Joe McGinley. He's CEO of Iconic Offices. But for now, thanks to Shane Flynn, who was on sound, and producer Katie Tallon. We're back at the same time next week, so stay tuned for Bowl of Soul, which is coming up next. Carol Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. Have a good week. 